Uh, you know, knowing your your land, your horizontal, your vertical, and then ultimately having kind of a conservative estimate for your rents on the back end. Plus, you've got to understand, okay, what can I finance this at? You've got your construction financing piece, and then you've got your takeout piece. So there's a lot of moving parts, and it took me a while to get comfortable with all of them. And that's why I say, you know, it's a progression. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and today our guest is William Walker. He's a real estate investor based in Nashville, Tennessee, who originally started his investing with a house hack. He's going to tell us about that, but he scaled very quickly into large multifamily value-add deals and real estate development. Today, we're learning about his mix of deals, how he looks at deals, both value-add multifamily and development deals, his thoughts about protecting your downside in any of these deals or your downside potential, particularly in real estate development. There just aren't as many people out there talking about developing deals. We talk about how he got into and scaled up his real estate portfolio. So many great things. He's an awesome guy who's doing big deals and scaled very quickly really moved fast, built partnerships to get into real estate investing. And I really wanted to pick his brain on making that transition from value-add multifamily investing to ground-up development and some of the differences and similarities there. So we get into that today. He's a great guy who knows a ton with a high-profile background as an accountant at a big firm before he became an investor himself. So great stuff here. You're going to enjoy it. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor, and I help busy people passively invest in commercial real estate through my company, NT Capital, specifically multifamily and self-storage properties. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and investing with us on a future deal, potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form, schedule a call with me, and I'll look forward to speaking with you soon. If you're an Apple Podcast user and you enjoy the show, please take it, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcast. Five stars if you don't mind, guys. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see your reviews and I get to see that you're escaping the Wall Street Casino along with us. That's what it's all about. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, once again, our guest is William Walker. Without any further ado, here we go. William, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Taylor. Glad to be here. Really excited to dig into our topic today, buying existing assets, developing multifamily, and everything in between. For our listeners out there who don't know about you and your background, can you tell us about what you do, what you invest in, and you know where you came from? Yeah, I'm a full-time real estate investor and developer. I started out on the corporate side as a, a CPA working with Ernst & Young and their transaction real estate group. And we're doing consulting for some large multifamily REITs and uh, private equity groups that parlayed into going into the private sector and eventually buying value-add properties and bought quite a few in 2018, 2019 and a little one in 2020. And through that process, learned a lot about operations management, construction, developed a, a few houses in Nashville during that time with a, a group of investors as well. And I currently live in Nashville, Tennessee, and my main focus is building and developing garden style surface park apartment complexes and buying value add stuff. 
Nice. Awesome. So I'd like to dig into how you got started and then really drive toward moving from uh, how you moved from buying existing assets into development or how that's been a mix for you and your strategy you know, as you've gone along and developed as an investor and as the market has changed and everything. So what was that first deal that you did? When was that? What kind of deal was it? First deal was in 2015. And I, I basically house hacked. I bought a, a ranch style house, single family built in the 60s right out of grad school, moved three of my buddies in and rented out the rooms was, you know, pretty leveraged to the max on that house, but uh, <laughs> was a, a landlord uh, slash investor with that property. And, you know, that taught me a lot about the business and the game. And, you know, the the next year in 2016, I, I acquired a HELOC on that house and built up some equity and was able to buy my second rental property and kind of going into the business. I uh, started working from an early age, worked a few corporate internships and jobs through college. And I really wanted um, to be a business owner and, uh, and develop passive income for myself. So that kind of led me to real estate. And, you know, through that process, I, I had a goal of, I was like, I'm going to buy a hundred single family homes. That's, you know, my, my big bucket list goal. And I bought two and I'm like, oh, it's not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to take way too long. So, uh, that led me to apartments and I had some really good mentors and, um, guidance along the way. I remember a friend put me on a, a good book, a multifamily book as I was moving down to Atlanta, Georgia to work for Ernst & Young and their real estate group. And, you know, lo and behold, within that real estate group, uh, we were consulting for large clients that were buying and selling multifamily. The very first client that I worked for was MidAmerica Apartments. We were uh, engaged to do basically a, a purchase price allocation on a portfolio they were buying from Post properties is a 20,000 unit deal, a $3 billion transaction. And that really gave me a, a kind of an expedited PhD, if you will, in multifamily. And uh, I also did a coaching and networking course during that same time and kind of seeing the institutional side of the business and the, uh, I would say, more boots on the ground entrepreneurial side of the business. It gave me confidence to go out and do it on my own. So in 2017, I, I left my corporate job with Ernst & Young. I had two rental properties and didn't really know what I didn't know, but uh, just went out <laughs> and hustled and uh, got around investors, got around people, smaller smaller investors that were buying deals. I, I had some coaching from the multifamily group. So uh, I had a direction, but you know, I, I tell people that my path was very zigzagged. It wasn't straightforward, but uh, I was all in and uh, my back was against the wall in some ways. And I had the, uh, you know, I had the burn the boats mentality that, you know, I'm going to make this work or I'm going to die trying. And in 2018, I got into my first deal. It was a uh, property in Columbus, Georgia called Quail Ridge is 160 units. And from there, we, uh, we scaled up and I had a, a great business partner that I had met in my coaching and networking group that we partnered together on a number of deals. And uh, we ended up buying 12 assets in 2019. It was a little over 1,500 doors. Uh, managed those, got all of those to a higher valuation through forced depreciation by renovating units and uh, doing a lot of capex on these properties. We were buying mostly uh, 70s and 80s built assets. So there was a lot of meat on the bones. And that kind of led me into development, you know, seeing that process, I uh, had a, a good friend from college whose cousins were general contractors, and he lived with me for uh, 
a season right out of school. He's one of the guys that moved in that first property. And together we built 12 houses in Nashville and brought in investors to do that. So that was my first taste into development and you know, just kind of the combination of you know the apartments and the development and, and seeing where the market's going and seeing where the opportunity was. That's led me into uh, building apartment complexes. And now I'm working on a uh, 144 unit garden style development in Brownsville, Texas with my business partner and another one of our JV partners. Awesome. So you have so much going on. You uh, really acquired quite a lot in that first year of, of spinning it up and, and buying all those properties. That's, that's a lot to get done. Very impressive. And you were going after a value add strategy which has been very popular for the last number of years, but we're seeing folks pivoting away from value-add multifamily, just looking for greener pastures. And, and you did that. You chose to get into development. So tell us about that process. I mean, there, there's so much that one doesn't know getting into you know, multifamily totally. value-add, let alone developing new properties. You did smaller deals. Now you're doing bigger ones. But you know, let's dig into that and, and lessons that you learned becoming a developer. Yeah. Um... So, you know, I, I feel like a lot of success stories and not that, uh, you know, I've, I've had some success, but in ways I feel like I'm just getting going. You know, it seems like it accelerated quickly and it did in some ways, but ultimately, you know, it was a four year kind of journey from 2014 when I really started applying myself to real estate to getting in that first deal. But I think it's progression and you really got to, you know, help yourself first and really educate yourself. I invested in coaching programs and getting around the right people and just trying to add value to investors in any way possible. But on the development side of the business, you know, it is, it's a longer, longer uh, project cycle, but you know, in some ways it's easier than the value add. Some ways it's harder, but it's rewarding to me because you're taking a, you're putting together a plan and seeing that through execution. But I would say it starts with, you know, educating yourself and getting around mentors and people that know the business and do the business and, you know, starting where you can. I didn't, jump into apartment development, you know, didn't even really imagine myself developing when I first got into, uh, you know, real estate investing. I, I was always, always thought of myself as the, you know, the existing multifamily guy. But as you get into the business, you, you learn different uh, strategies and tricks of the trade. You see what other people are doing. And uh, I think the biggest push for me was just the just changes in the market. Uh, the prices that I was seeing in the value add space were you know, going up each year, the margins were getting thinner and thinner. We buy based on cash flow. And if, uh, you know, we get great appreciation, awesome. If we don't get great appreciation, the property still has cash flows. So I was seeing that get thinner and thinner. And I was ultimately finding that I could almost build a property for the same price that I could buy a 1970s or 1980s built property for. So that motivated me a lot to go into that that path. And I think, you know, market changes, we go through cycles in the economy and we can't create the economy, but we can adapt to it and, you know, modify our strategy. So I think getting into development is, is definitely, uh, you know, not something I would necessarily encourage you to jump straight into. It's good to, uh, you know, get your feet wet and, you know, just buying your first single family house and, uh, you know, living it in a year and then renting it out. That's, a, I think, a great way to kind of learn about the financing and the different components uh, of the business. But it was, a, it was a slow process. And, you know, I didn't do it by myself. I've had some great mentors and partners along the way that have made it possible as well. But it takes a team to, to get these developments done and to do it at scale. So when you think about 
I'd like to dig into when you think about evaluating a deal, particularly with an eye on you know, the passive investors out there who are listening, because in my mind and my observation, there's a lot more content out there around evaluating value add multifamily. There's just uh, maybe more people doing it. I'm not really sure, but there just seems to be less regarding evaluating a development investment. So what is your process for evaluating a deal? And perhaps some of that will translate to the, the passive investor and what they should be looking for. Yeah. So I'm looking for cash flow and, you know, based on what I need to pay my investors, yeah, that's kind of my minimum threshold. And I want to see good returns or good yield or cash flow going into the deal. So if I'm looking at or underwriting a deal and the rents are, you know, a thousand dollars a month and the price of the property is 200,000 a door. And I kind of know that based on my model and what I need to pay investors, that's probably going to be a pretty thin deal. But if there's a story behind it, like, you know, long-term ownership or, you know, 20% of the property is vacant or, you know, it hasn't been updated in 20 years, you know, I, that's something to look a little closer at. So I think you've got a one be able to process deals quickly and kind of have your metrics and know your model and know your local operating costs to one qualified deals. And then you've got to be able to see the opportunity through, you know, forced appreciation or, you know, some kind of renovation program or see a, a way to get to higher income. That's not just, oh, I'm going to, you know, increase the rents by a hundred dollars a month. And a lot of what I'm seeing now is, you know, these properties have been bought and sold multiple times over the last five years. And it's really just kind of uh, handing the bag off to the next person. And you hear a lot of investors <laughs> say like, you don't want to be the last guy holding the bag. And I didn't really, knew, didn't really understood what that meant when I first heard it, but you know, it means more to me now. And uh, so I, I think those, those things uh, are a couple of items that I look for in analyzing value out apartments and, and multifamily in general. Sure. Knowing so, your cost, you've got to have it down. Absolutely. Costs, people can kind of mess with their expenses and everything, accounting just to make it look good in the short term. But the the calculus, the determination is going to change a little bit when, or maybe significantly, when you look at a new development, because there is no existing rent, you are kind of, I presume, estimating what your per unit cost is going to be. And you can come up with your ideas of rents you can get on the back end. But at the end of the day, you're making a projection out totally. in the future. I think that's what makes people uncomfortable. So how did you get that level of comfort when looking at a, you know, a, a new development deal? I mean, let's can we translate that to a, a new development type of investment? Yeah, I think that a lot of fundamentals in underwriting value add uh, are the same with new development, but you just got the the construction component, which is a huge component. But ultimately, you're making projections and you're making a lot of assumptions in these models and kind of goes back to my days with EY and underwriting these large models because a lot of the, the large real estate groups, they're not boots on the ground. They're very data-driven, very macro level, and they're they depend a lot on assumptions where the opposite entrepreneurs, you know, they're kind of, you know, almost doing the management themselves. They're acting in way, might be acting as a self-contractor and, and kind of absorbing a lot of those expenses. So on the new development side, you know, you really want to first start with your land and understand what land is going for. And, uh, and when you can find a piece of land and take that through entitlement and put a project around it, inherently that's going to add value. So that's kind of one piece of the development process. And then from there, you've got 
a sellable project, or you can take it on to the next step in the development process and continue on with the vertical construction. Uh, and you've you've really got to talk to your your vendors and your contractors on the horizontal land development piece and understand what's it going to cost to to put ten pads on here for you know two hundred units or or however many you're doing, and and what's my my vertical construction cost per square foot? But you know it's it's hard to in real estate you. You know, there's always a level of risk and a tolerance that you've got to be willing to take. And, you know, if you're too conservative on your assumptions, you probably won't ever get into a deal. But if you're over conservative or you're, you're over aggressive on your assumptions, you know, you could get into uh, an unsuccessful situation or, or get into trouble. So it's a balance. And I think that, you know, comes with experience and time and education and being close to the real estate, you know. I think the way you compete with larger shops is, is being closer to the property, whether that's being closer to the owner or understanding your costs better, being able to do it for less. So, um, but it kind of goes back to, you know, really just understanding, you know, in, in the value add space, you've got to understand what you can run that property for and, and the rents you can get and um, what it's going to cost you to renovate the unit and how much rent you're going to be able to get for. And you got to ease into that. So, uh, you know, knowing your your land, your horizontal, your vertical, and then ultimately having kind of a conservative estimate for your rents on the back end. Plus, you've got to understand, okay, what can I finance this at? You've got your construction financing piece, and then you've got your takeout piece. So there's a lot of moving parts, and it took me um, a while to get comfortable with all of them. And that's why I say, you know, it's a progression. Uh, you don't just really jump into multifamily development unless your generational or, you know, you know, I, I don't know anybody that that just jumped into that that bucket without having some kind of help or mentorship and not kind of building up their skill set along the way. Mm, absolutely. So a big one, I think, an area where developers have gotten in trouble in the past was not using the right financing, not getting the right source of funds to actually do the deal. And then they maybe run out of reserves or their cost of capital or no, it gets called or whatever things could go wrong. So how about financing a, or getting the money for a development project? What do you think is the right way to do it? Or maybe the other way around, what's the wrong way to do it? What are your thoughts about that? Uh, yeah. So we're seeing a lot of uh, shift in the financing markets right now. And I mm-hmm. think people underestimate or are too aggressive on, on some of the interest rate assumptions that they have. You know, we uh, we were working on a, a development down in Texas where you know we were getting quoted like two and a half percent from HUD, and you know within a, a pretty quick time period we were looking at like a four to five percent wow. interest rate. So, you know, I think that interest rates can change quickly, and in certain times of the market they change faster than others. But that's where you get into your assumptions and and being conservative. But having multiple exit strategies is also a way that you can. Uh, mitigate some of your risks. So in Nashville, we have 42 units that we're about to to start construction on. And we've been working on this this build a while. Interest rates have obviously gone up. And you know, we're we're even looking out into the future of okay, you know, what are people's what's it going to cost our end buyer to mortgage this property? You know, the higher the interest rate, the the more price downward price pressure that's going to put on on the values of the home. So, you know, we're looking at if we can't necessarily sell through them. Can we rent them out? So, I mean, multiple exit strategies and conservative assumptions on your your financing uh, is, and you know, not getting too aggressive on your your leverage as well. But I always say in multifamily, it's like a kind of like a diesel truck. You know, it's not a really 
fast moving, you know, <laughs> sexy kind of investment like tech or e-com or, you know, whatever it is, but it's stable and it's solid. And over the long term, as long as you don't have to refinance or sell in down markets and your cash flow is right, usually you're going to be able to ride out those those valleys in the the economy. And after every winter, there's spring and summer. And as long as the, you know, the American economy continues to chug on, we're I would bet that we're going to have higher highs after these cycles. So, you know, if if I had to summarize that, I would say, you know, conservative assumptions and multiple exit strategies and, uh, you know, not have in and long-term fixed rate debt. Nice. Okay. I like it. So there's been a lot of talk, speaking of the economy, there's been a lot of talk about builder confidence surveys and how, hey, with all these changes, Builder confidence is lower now than it's ever been in so many years, but it's looking terrible. And that's a, supposed to be a bad outlook for the economy. What are your thoughts about that? I mean, what is your what is your outlook if you had to put a, a sentiment analysis yeah, on it? Yeah, let me just go find my crystal ball real quick. <laughs> for yourself, though, what's your sentiment? Yeah, I think that, you know, over the last 12 to 24 months um, with, you know, the, the economy being shut down, lower production... And ultimately, printing an irresponsible amount of money, yeah. where we've seen a record amount of inflation. So, you know, the Fed only has so many tricks up their sleeve to mitigate inflation. And I think, you know, we just heard that rates are going to continue to creep up. So, I think they'll they'll be continuing to increase interest rates until inflation comes down, and that will probably send us into uh, you know a recession or some kind of pullback. Now, each market is going to be affected differently and not all markets will be you know hit as hard and you know 2008 i was in nashville and we were impacted but we were back on a growth curve pretty quickly within i'd say 18 months so that kind of goes back to not having to sell or refinance during those down periods but ultimately uh you know having a sufficient amount of reserves during these times but i think that you know based on what the fed continues to do if interest rates continue to go up we're going to see we're going to see a slower economy. You know, it's just fundamentals and pe- there's going to be less people that are able to afford houses. Uh, mortgage payments are going to be doubling, if not going up. So that's going to put downward pressure on real estate. It's also going to create opportunities, but that's not going to last forever because as the economy slows down uh, and they do that quantitative tightening, you know, on the other side of that will be the quantitative easing. When they start to lower interest rates, we're going to start seeing inflation again. And uh, I guess right now the the choice is do we you know do we slow down the economy or do we have hyperinflation? And you know we've already experienced. I think the consumer price index was nine percent the last time I saw, which was you know as high as it's been since the '80s. Which we can see why that's happened over the last couple of years. But ultimately, you know I think it's going to highly depend on what the Fed does with interest rates. But even if interest rates go up, it's not going to last forever. And you know, I think that eventually, you know, there'll be there'll be higher highs after after we see. But I, I do think the pendulum is starting to swing a little bit with real estate, and you know, we've already seen prices start to tick down, uh, markets slow. But I think one way you can mitigate that risk is find markets where you've got positive job growth and positive population growth, because people still need a place to live. You know, as long as you've got strong job and employment centers in your market, there's still going to be renters. And in the apartment business, you know, people need a place to live. So we might not be able to sell for a three percent cap rate, like I feel like a lot of people have been able to do over the last, mm-hmm. you know, you know, couple of years. But ultimately, that cash flow is still going to be there. We're still going to be able to pay our operations, still be able to pay our primary, still be able to pay our investors. And if you have the long-term fixed-rate debt, 
you'll be able to ride out those uh, those storms and you know realize gains on the back on the growth cycle. Nice. Okay. Great. Sounds like uh, maybe some rough times ahead, but if we set ourselves up right, then we'll make it to the other side. Be okay. Yeah, everything cycles, so we'll we'll see what happens. But um, you know, with interest rates with interest rates going continuing to go up, it's got to put downward pressure on on real estate. And some of these people that are in deals with bridge money, and you know, they've got to refinance in a, a year or two. That that could be tough. Absolutely. Doesn't mean doesn't you know guarantee anything, but uh, you know, something that I'd be looking out for if I was an investor or you know a limited partner, you know, looking at at these deals and trying to figure out if I want to enter into them is. You know, what kind of debt's being put on it as a bridge money and uh you know what's my re- what's our refinance strategy how much leverage do we need what's you know the interest rate threshold how how high can we go on that interest rate before the deal doesn't make sense great love it right now we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor the first step to growing your wealth is tracking your wealth income spending and everything else about your finances you can start tracking your wealth for free and Get six free months of wealth advisory with personal capital by going to escapingwallstreet.com and using our link. Create your free account today and automate the way you track your money. Personal capital is my preferred way to track my finances, and now we're making that available for listeners. Terms and conditions apply. See the personal capital website for details. Once again, to get the offer, go to escapingwallstreet.com and use our link. Back to the show. All right, William, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? I'm ready. Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? I would say just that that first deal. I mean, it, it hopefully it doesn't sound cliche, but it got me into the business. I still own that house today. I'm trying to release it now and probably spend too much time on it. But I would say for for that fact, you know, it, it got me in the business, got me going and taught me a lot about the rental game. And then financially, the best deal I did was a foreclosure or it was in receivership in Columbus is 160 unit property. And uh, we got it for a great price and uh, sold it two years later and, and realized a, a great and a great return on that property as well. Nice. Nice. So we had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? Um, the worst investment I ever made Probably get a, this is hopefully no Amazon guys out there. Uh, I invested in a, an Amazon drop shipping store that was supposed mm. to be completely hands off, uh, you know, automated, basically completely uh, managed for me. And, you know, I, I learned a lot from that, but it, it was not successful and uh, ultimately did not turn out like I, I thought it was going to. Interesting. Very coincidentally, one of my investors texted me about an hour ago and asked me what I thought about turnkey e-commerce businesses. And my answer was, honestly, I don't know that much about them. I haven't studied it, but I'm definitely skeptical about the long-term sustainability of a lot of them because what if your product falls out of favor on Amazon or Amazon holds right. the reins or yeah. is it really completely off, you know, out of your hands? I kind of doubt it. Like businesses don't really work that way. So if we can ask, was there something in particular that like went wrong that cause that deal to that investment to like go bad. Yeah. So I think there was definitely, there's definitely been a lot of people that have made a lot of money in drop shipping, but mm-hmm. I got into the, I think I got into it a little late and Amazon and Walmart both were cracking down big time on drop shippers. So, you know, part of it was timing and, you know, it's hard to time the market, but that, 
is a factor in almost any investment. So that was one piece of it. But I think if you're going to get into drop shipping, from what my experience has been, you need to have um, your own store like Shopify where you're not, I mean, Amazon and Walmart do not allow, technically allow drop shipping. They want you to have your own product and when they want it to be fulfilled by Amazon, but it's hard for them to catch every store. So um, that was a learning opportunity for me. So I think if you're going to get into it, you, know, you really got to know your manager and you know the turnkey portion of it. But you know, a lot of these online sales programs, you know, they they talk a big game. But you know, I always ask myself if the concept was so great or the business was so great, why aren't you doing business versus you know selling the the, the program? So. And then, you know, I, that's uh, a little facetious, but again, I know, I know some people that are crushing it in drop shipping, but they're doing it in a different way and a different method than what I invested in. Gotcha. I do know some people who have had success in those businesses, but it's, they didn't do it from turnkey. It's not Correct. necessarily drop shipping and they have some kind of angle that gets them in and it's a lot of work. They make a lot of money, but it's also totally nothing. That's the key. Taylor, nothing. Uh, it's hard to make a quick buck and uh, and not put in the work. And I would say, if there's anybody promising you returns that sound too good to be true, and not a lot of hard work, you know, probably it's too good to be true. Yep, we see that in a lot of the uh, trading courses that you might run across on YouTube or some of those pitches. They're just garbage. If they were really successful at it, wouldn't they be doing that instead of selling a course about it? But that's a right, topic right. for another day. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? I would say um, persistence. You know, I think a lot of people quit before they really give themselves a chance for success. And it's not easy, but you know, it took me well over 12 months um, of kind of really grinding it out back against the wall before I saw really any momentum. And I think you've got to have that persistence and that grit to educate yourself, to kind of, you know, I hate to even say the word motivate yourself, but to keep going and have a strong why. So, you know, persistence is undervalued, but, uh, you know, it, it can't be, um, can't be understated. Nice. Wow. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, sharing all these great lessons with us. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch with you, if they want to learn more about your what you're up to or anything like that, where can they track you down? And we can... Uh, you can reach me at my website at uh, www.4mrei.com. And uh, I'm also on social media platforms, Instagram at, at willwalker underscore three. Great. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I appreciate that so much, you guys. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you, that gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.